0: The first couple of years of working with Imba, we've been able to see most of the United States and work in all of these different biomes and with all these different user groups. And it was just this fantastic magic experience and learned so much and were able to impart a lot of different uh, or a lot of good information to different groups and everything. And then uh, EMBA sent us to Europe.
1: Welcome to Trail Effect episode 38. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. Episode 38 features Mike Ryder of Trail Design Specialists. Mike was part of the original Amber Trail Care crew that launched in 1997. Mike has been described to me as one of the modern-day godfathers of trail building. Mike has had his hand in nearly every aspect of trails, including having regular interactions with all the different user groups, which is especially important when trying to actively manage and promote shared-use trails. There's a lot of knowledge packed into this episode, so sit back and enjoy the show. Support for Trail Effect comes from Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Smith's is a full-service bike shop that is a retailer for Trek Bicycle Company and Celsa Cycles. Smith also has a full line of components and accessories from Bontrager and other various companies. For more information about Smiths Bike Shop, go to www.smithsbikes.com. A special thanks goes out to Ben Wellenek from Mountain Bike Radio for supporting this podcast and to the people who have shared their time and knowledge. Without this, we would not have these stories to tell. This podcast is an Evolution Trail Services production. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com.
0: You know, when I first became aware that they were professional trail builders, because let's face it, I mean most people that build that or that work on trails or use trails don't have any idea that there are professionals out there that that keep this you know, keep their trail nice or or build the trail or or do any type of maintenance for it. And uh, so when I first became aware, I would say there were fewer than twenty-five trail builders nationwide and most of those with the exception of maybe two were out West. And, uh, um, in fact, the, the professional trail builders association started as a Western, it was the Western trail builders association. And, uh, it was just a few companies that existed out there get together. And they, they joke now, you know, that their primary reason for getting together was so they could drink beer and swap lies about trails they built. And, uh, You know, now, much like Imba, it's growing into this international thing that uh, encompasses a lot more trail builders. Nationwide, I'd say we're probably more than 200 to 250 trail builders strong. So, um, yeah, everything is everything has changed. Yeah.
2: And when you start Trail Design Specialists, there is. how many think
0: maybe? There was there in the in the southeast. Um, in fact, east of the Mississippi, there were probably only five trail builders. In the southeast there was no one.
2: Were they all up in the northeast in the New England area? Or? Uh
0: yeah, that's that the other two were in, in in, New England. And uh so, you know, when I first started, there was it's it was so funny because there was a, certainly a need. You know, you would hear I would talk to people about, you know, uh, land agencies about trail projects and things like that. And they'd be like, yeah, it'd be so nice if we had somebody we could hire to do this, but we have no money. We have no money. We have no money. And it was, it was funny for years. I just, I just listened to that. And then finally, you know, I was approached by a land agency and said, Hey, you know, we'd like, like for you to, um, come out and, and help us with our trails. And so there's a whole story about how, how my company evolved from that. And, uh, We'll get into that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get into that later. But, uh, should we
2: officially start? Sure. Cool. Okay. Trail effect here with Mike Ryder. Mike Ryder has been described to me, and this is after I knew him, Mike Ryder has been described to me as from some other really high-end luminaries within the trail building industry as a godfather of modern day trail building, as he sits here and laughs. Um, but I, but I truly believe that's true. So. Today, we have Mike Ryder. How's it going today,
0: Mike? It's good. Good. Good day.
2: We can't do the Trail Effect podcast without Mike Ryder. So I'm really glad that you're in town, that we can meet up in person. You know, you're here doing your thing, teaching Trail Master Certification here in La Crosse, Wisconsin, which you've done many times, probably over going on 15 years now. 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a lot. Um, For those that don't know Mike Ryder, he is a part of the original IMBA Trail Care Crew back in 1997 so we're talking over 20 years ago. He was one of the authors, if not the main author of Imba's Guide to Sweet Single Track, which is a book that I think every trail organization still looks at today. It's it's really stood the test of time. Owner of Trail Design Specialist, which is something he got into post Imba, and something we'll get into in this show. He's the creator of Trail Master Certification Courses. And he's probably, I mean, people could argue this. I don't know if anybody would, but he's probably trained more people on how to Build and maintains uh, single track, but trails in general, you know, whether it's for UTVs, ATVs, equestrian, mountain biking, hiking. He's probably trained more people than anyone else in this nation, if not this galaxy. And uh, and he also does. He also teaches people how to do mechanized trail building. So, let's get into how you got into this world of trails and trail building, Mike.
0: Okay, well, that's a generalized question, but uh, you know, the funny thing is, is I started just about like anybody else. I started out as a volunteer, uh, working with a a mountain bike organization in the Southeast called the Southern Off-Road Bicycle Association. And prior to that, uh, I was part of the Boy Scouts and, you know, we did trails as there wasn't a trail merit badge then, but we would do trails as part of our, our community projects and things like that. So it was, uh, yeah, you know, it was a learning experience. It was, it was about, going out and doing what other people showed you how to do and and a lot of what what we did then was you know let's go here because that'll be fun you know the word sustainability wasn't really a big part of our practices then
2: yeah as it's evolved to so with that what you know what kind of piqued your interest with even going towards the avenue of the imba trail career crew because that was a new concept they basically i think gave you the keys to a subaru and said
0: have fun right that's a that's a that's a story in in itself um so it kind of goes back to it all comes back to one person but prior to the 1996 olympics i was contacted by uh, a person here in wisconsin and uh um he was uh at that time the manager for tinker juarez who was who had actually made the 1996 Olympic mountain bike team, and he was looking for some place for Tinker's family to stay during the 1996 Olympics. Now, at that time, I was living in a town called Conyers in Georgia, and it was ten miles from the Olympic site. Um, and uh, this guy knew I was a mountain biker um, and uh, had contacted Sorba, and we're you know we're looking for suitable places, and so. It worked out really well. Tinker um, and some of his extended family came to or Tinker's family came to stay with us during the Olympics. And then right after the Olympic race was over, uh, Tinker came and stayed for almost a week. And uh, it was fantastic. The person that set that up was uh, Jay Franklin. And at that time, he was on the board of directors with Sorba uh, and deeply involved with Imba. Um When the idea for the InBit trail care crew came around, again, Jay Franklin nominated us as as a potential for the the trail care crew. And uh, we went through a series of interviews and it was really funny at first because I, you know I was at first I was all gung-ho, you know, we gotta do this. this is gonna be the best thing ever." And uh, my wife was uh, was like, no, you know, she was the voice of reality. She was like, there was no way we could afford to, just mothball the house and uh and go on the road and and live in a Subaru. And and then after a couple interviews, we flip-flopped. And I was like, Yeah, the reality is, is there's no way we're gonna be able to do this. You know, we can't afford it. It's it's too scary. I don't think we should do it. And and then and she was like, Yeah, we can make this work. And and Tim Blumenthal was the executive director of Mba at that time, and, and he was the one conducting the interviews. And, you know, he did a great job of of selling the the program to us and and explaining, you know, how great it was going to be to go around the world or around the United States and be Johnny Appleseed and sell, you know, great trails to people and, and the idea of it. Um, and so we finally agreed and we literally did that. We mothballed our house. Um, we packed up our two dogs. We had a golden retriever and a yellow lab and we drove out to uh, Boulder. And my thought was that IMBA would have this whole program set up with Subaru, you know, a, a well structured program. And all we had to do was pick up the Subaru and they would tell us where to go and how the program was supposed to work. And we get there and uh, we meet with the, the staff. Now, at that time, IMBA was still in its infancy. They had three full time staff and two part time people. And so it was a very, very, very small organization. And uh, they they set us up with a Subaru. We got the, uh, the bike rack and everything um, mounted on the car. And literally the next day, <laughs> they said, all right, we're going to send you to Moab, Utah. It's going to be your first stop. And I'm like, OK, what's our program? And they're like, we want you to make that up as you go. You're going to develop this program <laughs> as you go. So we went out with just a car and the two of us um, and uh, went out and went to Moab, Utah. And we showed up and uh, the group we were supposed to meet with there took us out on the trail and they're like, "Okay, we've got some really tough issues we want some help with. And we go out there and they show us rock and sand. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, so what do you think we should do? And I'm like, "Uh, move. I don't know. (laughs) You know. Because we were we had come from Georgia, you know, and so we were used to red clay and, and 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 lots of rain and things like that and not rock. And so we had no idea what we were doing when we first started that program or how it was going to evolve. Wow. Did they give you tools? And by that is when you left. We did we did not leave with tools. We did eventually <laughs> get tools. Um, but uh, no, we didn't we yeah, we showed up, we just had bikes on the cars and and it was us. So you had bikes, dogs, and a Subaru. Exactly. But uh, it was the the cool thing about that was, is everywhere we went, there were people like us who had kind of figured out what it took to make their trails work. And uh, again, sustainability was still a kind of a new word at that time. Uh, but they had, you know, figured out how to reduce the amount of maintenance they did on their trails. And so I'll be honest. My first year with uh, IMBA was more of a shut up and listen, you know, and learn from other people way more than I ever taught anybody.
2: Yeah. Oh, I bet. Especially considering, you know, you came from the Southeast. Right. You know, and you're looking at there's different soil everywhere. And so do you have any stories that you could, that maybe stick out in your mind of while you were traveling with this IMBA, you know, doing the, or basically creating the IMBA Trail Care crew? You know, from a certain community or communities that, you know, and it could be a funny story or something that just really sticks out.
0: The big thing was the people, you know, the different people we worked with. And uh, being as it was 20 years ago, it tends to all run together now um, in my in my aged brain. But uh, I will say that, you know, places that really stick out was uh, one of them was when we had the opportunity to actually make the international part of Mba come true. And we spent um, a little over a month in Europe, and uh, we were supposed—we were sent over there to teach people how to how to design and uh, construct and maintain sustainable trails there. And uh, it was our second year of working with Imba, and it was like starting all over again. Um, you know, again, the first couple of years of working with Imba we had been able to see most of the United States and work in all of these different biomes and with all these different user groups. And it was just this fantastic magic experience and learned so much and was able to impart a lot of different uh, or a lot of good information to different groups and everything. And then uh, Imba sent us to Europe. And uh, the first part and the part that really sticks out the most to me was Switzerland. Uh, We were we were teaching a conference, uh, not just a trail school in Europe. And we had people from, I don't know, 15 different European countries there. And my big fear was, how are we going to, you know, get across the language barrier? And amazingly, every single person at the conference spoke English. So that was pretty easy. But uh, the and the presentation was great it was it was pretty much routine for us by then but when the question started it was a whole different ball game because there's so many differences between uh the way things are viewed in Europe uh, the different laws uh, affecting different countries and things like that and the big shocker for me was people's view on public and private property you know here in the United States uh, you've got public land and you've got private land. And going from one to the other, access can be a real issue, especially under private property. Whereas in Europe, it's completely different. People accept public and private property are, there's a, the line is really blurred there. You can go from public property on a private property, trails go, th- go through them all the time. And my first experience is we were out on a group ride and we came up to a gate that literally the trail went through somebody's backyard. And I stopped at the gate and I'm like, are you sure this is OK? And then everybody's like, looks at me like, like what? You guys don't do this all the time. You know, this isn't every day. <laughs> and they just opened the gate and went through. And there was a woman uh, putting actually hanging laundry out on a line. And she just waved to us and, and said hello. And it was just like this happened every day. And I was completely blown away. Um, the other side of that coin is when we were working with folks in England and uh, the laws that govern what has to, what can happen and what can't happen on trails was just astounding. If, if somebody, you know, we'd look at a trail that had been there for hundreds of years and, you know, they're like, well, what do we do about this? And I'm like, well, the obvious answer is to reroute the trail. But changes to trails in England have to go through Parliament. It has to literally be an act of Parliament to make a change to a trail. And so it it wasn't, the answer wasn't as easy as just realigning the trail or rerouting the trail. And uh, so it was a really different world, but it was, it was a magical experience. I absolutely loved our time in Europe and the people that we worked with there.
2: So while we're on the topic of Europe and their trails, I've never had the opportunity to go there, but I've seen, especially because we have this thing called YouTube now, you can see a lot of stuff now that you wouldn't otherwise be able to see. What did you think of their old school trails and, and the geometry of those trails, such as the the way they deal with switchbacks, and turns
0: and and grades? Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was amazing. You know, uh, the big difference there is the terms of age on their trails. You know, so many of their trails uh, compared to ours who have been here, like, you know, an old trail here is 20 years old. were are there an old trail there is between 200 and 500 years old. And, uh, it was amazing at how well some of that stuff had been, had held up, but you know, you start digging a little bit deeper and you find out, you know, like, well, the Romans created this, you know, 500 years ago. And, uh, but they did it with slaves. You know, we call them volunteers now, but it's still, <laughs> it was still the same difference. And, uh, so you know they had they had engineering involved in it where there was a uh, an uh, you know where there was an underlayer of solid rock and and then built up rock and the you know the, their some of their trails were crowned you know it was just amazing that the engineering that went into them and how long that kind of stuff lasted it wasn't just it wasn't just being built for fun you know it was like let's build this to last and that's kind of a that was a big push behind going back and rethinking how we did sustainable yeah it
2: sounds like they almost built them like we build our modern day roads without the actual solid surface of concrete or asphalt
0: absolutely that's a really good way of putting it Wow
2: that's that's pretty amazing and that was I mean truly trails have changed in terms of you know they were the form of transportation that was how you got from community to community and now trails are a, a, truly a form of recreation and so the way you know trails function is a whole different thing too.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Several years ago, I got to spend part of the summer with the state archaeologist in Georgia, and one of the things that we were identifying was the original Unicoi Turnpike, and uh, it is it's a part most of it's a paved road now, but it started out as a prehistoric trail, uh, game trail, then later on became used by Native Americans that were hunting and trading along that, and then later on. Uh, white settlers used this this to move westward, um, and in following their pursuits, and then it became uh, parts of it have become a recreational trail. Now it's a some of it's a paved road, and it runs all the way from uh, Savannah, Georgia, well up into uh, Tennessee. And uh, it it's a good analogy for the way our trails have evolved, and you know, going from something that was. That was never originally intended for recreation or fun, but as a, a, like you said, a means of travel all the way up to, to now where, you know, we look at things from let's, you know, how fast can we go down this downhill? Yeah. Kind of stuff, things like that.
2: Yeah. Or one of the ways I like to look at it is how, what kind of story can this trail tell? Yeah. You know, to really get a good, good user experience. Absolutely. So eventually, Amba decided they wanted to publish a book. Mm Mm-hmm. How'd that how'd that come about? And tell us about your your involvement with the book that probably still to today is used more than any other book, which is Imba's Guide to Sweet Single Track.
0: After the the first year of being with Imba, um, we sat down with Tim Blumenthal, and I was really excited about the idea of creating some type of book or something that or pamphlet that that Imba could put out that would that would really kind of outline a lot of the things that we talked about out in the field. And uh, Tim was excited about it as well. We had already, uh, again, working with some people from Wisconsin. Wisconsin keeps coming up throughout my career. And it's it's become certainly one of my favorite places. But uh, uh, the group WARBA, the Wisconsin Off-Road Bicycle Association at that time was run by Scott Frey and Rita Nigren. and uh, Scott is—they're um, both computer technical people. And Scott had helped me put together the very first uh, trail book for my trail schools, and it was—it was only twelve pages long, but it was something that we could hand out when we did the Imba uh, Trail Care Crew visits, and that became the basis for a book for um, for Imba and. While we didn't sit down and write the whole book, uh, it was a definitely a collaborative effort, effort between several people at Imba and several other trail care crews to come together. And uh, uh, I had, you know, also had part of the final edit on that, which was which was really nice. There is a there is a little bit of a dark side to it, you know. When I went to work for Imba, I was a mountain biker. All right, no. I was an adventurer. All right. I love mountain biking, rock climbing, hiking, backpacking. Um, I didn't run unless there was a bear chasing me, but uh, you know, there was a, I grew up riding horses, but my main focus was mountain biking. And Imba was the one or the, the organization that really pushed the whole shared use thing uh, with me. And, and, you know, as part of our job as a trail care crew. Was to go out and and talk about just uh, you know shared use on trails, not just mountain biking. And so I was really kind of disappointed because I put a lot of information about shared use in that book about dealing with shared use. And the final edit, it all got pulled out.
2: Wow, that's interesting.
0: And you know, you look at look at uh, the way Imba has evolved, uh, going down that road. You know, they're they're. They're not what I would call a shared use organization. All right, they're they're definitely focused on mountain biking, and and for a good bit of it, that's that's an absolutely right attitude to take. But when I first started with Imba, the model that was held up, um, and I'm going to throw the hiking people underneath the bus now, was the Sierra Club was at its strongest. All right in the in the late 80s, early 90s, um, they as far as uh, nonprofit organizations, they kind of ruled the roost. And they were all about hiking only, you know, foot traffic only. They didn't want any other users on, on trails and they worked very hard to do that. Where's the Sierra Club now? You know, I mean, how often does that come up in conversation? They're still there. They're still a viable organization. But they I th- really think that because they didn't embrace shared use, they kind of undercut themselves. Oh, for sure. And so that's kind of a kind of a fear of mine. that I'm worried about that's where Imba might be headed is down that same path.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know, and we've had these discussions I, it's funny, that the podcast that I'm working on editing right now, that's going to be out obviously before this show is, was with Dave Weens, the current executive director of EMBA. And I think, you know, he, he definitely, and they definitely realized that they can't, even though mountain biking is in the name, they have to be more than mountain biking and they are doing more than mountain biking. For example, the, the trail system that they designed here in Cross in 2019 and was built in 2020 does have some singular use hiking trail as part of it you know and i think at the end of the day we really need to focus on a good user experience and how to integrate all those users together correct
0: exactly exactly and and i'll echo what you just said you know one of uh, when i worked for imba as the trail care crew um we got to meet a lot of professional athletes and david weens was one of them and uh uh, little known fact David was also uh one of the original designers for the Olympic course in in Conyers in 1996 um but uh uh when i heard that he was coming on as the new executive director for Emba i was pretty excited because he always struck me as a quality person and uh so and i've have, i've seen good things under under his direction so yeah for yeah, sure it's exciting it's it's good to hear and and exciting that Emba's continuing to take a good path.
2: So I didn't, I didn't bring this up as a topic to you early on, but I think this is a topic you can touch on and something that, that'll continue this part of the conversation because it is important, which is what type of features or what type of ways do you try to impart on people when you're teaching your trail master classes to integrate having a good quality shared use experience? You know, what, what do you see as being important aspects of trail design and trail development to promote shared use
0: you know it's all right there's two ways i approach this from a design standpoint the easy thing is is sight lines all right you know you think of uh, most stories you've heard of bad interactions between users on trails and it's almost always a startle factor if it's if it's a hiker that doesn't like mountain bikers it's because they were surprised by somebody overtaking them at a high rate of speed if it's a horse person or, or another user, you know, it's, it, it's, it's almost always a surprise factor. So having good sight lines. The other thing is, is that controlling the way that the trail is designed, you know, in integrating uh, grade reversals in there, integrating um, uh, lights, uh, lots of turns and things like that can help control speed on a trail. And it, it can literally overcome a lot of problems or potential problems that people have on trails. The other thing I see is is a matter of education, all right? You know, mountain bikers present a particular image on a trail, you know, the way they dress, the, the culture, uh, subculture, and everything that goes along with that, and, uh, and their view on what they're looking for when they go out on the trail. Horse community is the same way. Foot traffic, whether they're runners or hikers, or whatever, have that same type of of mentality. Uh, the thing about it is, is what they don't realize is that most of their goals and most of the things that they look for when they're on the trails are exactly the same thing. And because I am cross culture with all those, you know, I I live in all those different camps, and it's funny to sit around a campfire at the end of the day and listen to the stories and realize that they're exactly the same. And so, so through Education, that's part of what I do is to promote on promoting shared use on trails, is to try to help people understand that they're not different from any other users. The only thing, the only difference is their their mode of conveyance on the trail.
2: Yeah, for sure. We're gonna go just a little bit deeper into the weeds. Okay. This is totally out of left field. He's not expecting this question. What are your thoughts on directional trails?
0: I support directional trail. All right. I think they're a great thing. The big problem with directional trails is, A, they have to be directional from day one. All right. You can't take a bi-directional trail and say, all right, now you can only go one way. You'll get anarchy. People will not conform to that. Two, you have to have an ability to enforce that. And that can be done in two different ways. You can actually have law enforcement in the form of a ranger that's out there going, you're going to get a ticket if I catch you going the wrong way again. Or B, um, which is equally as effective, is peer pressure. All right. You know, the the Olympic mountain bike course, the the whole the trail that literally got me where I'm at today. Um, it was my test bed for learning new things. Uh, it was the thing that caught the media's attention and helped propel me into Imba and all that. It was directional from day one. Obviously, it was a, a, a race course and it's still maintained as a directional race course. And it's one of those deals. If you ride that trail the wrong way. I promise you, in the net, the first mile, fifty people are going to tell you you're going the wrong way, and stop you, and encourage you to turn around and go the right way. It just, you know, it works out very well that way. But yeah, I support uh, directional trails. Um, most trails aren't directional because they they either weren't designed that way to, or implemented that way from the very beginning, or they just don't have the enforcement to to make it happen.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I've always thought, and this is kind of pulling back out of the weeds but every trail seems to ride better one way versus the other two you know whether it was intended to be that way or not it just seems like trails you know the way they laid out and how they ended up getting built
0: it's all about the flow
2: yep so exactly so we'll get back out of the weeds here but how how did the transition go so eventually you know you, you moved on from imba and you started trail design specialists let's get the story behind that and your thoughts and how that went
0: so we worked for Imba as the trail care crew for three years. And at the end of that time, um, my wife and I both made the decision to retire from the road and go back to pursuing more mundane practices. And uh, um, I will say that I was the reluctant one to give it up. I absolutely loved being on the road. I loved working with pe- different people and talking about trails and my Previous job was working um, in the wholesale irrigation industry, and I really did not want to go back to a nine to five job. And so I was fortunate enough to land a job uh, with the uh, Georgia DNR as a state trails coordinator, and with education being the primary thing that I was going to be doing. And I did that for a couple of years, and it was great. Um, I enjoyed doing it. Uh, I was also able to flesh out the beginnings of the trail master class that that I have now with that and was able to teach some of that at uh, uh, Georgia Technical College in Gainesville, Georgia. So, um, but I would get, infrequently, I would get requests to come out and do trail design or trail assessment or, hey, can you help us with this problem or something like that? And I had to be very careful because I didn't want to get into a conflict of interest with my job at the state. And so I would have to talk to my supervisor about it before we uh, before I did any of that stuff. But the big turning point came when um, I was contacted after five years of being with the state, I was contacted by the National Park Service to do an assessment on several of their parks in the Chattahoochee National Recreation Area, which runs throughout Atlanta. I thought about it a lot and I got back to him and said, you know what, I think this is something I really want to do. And they're great. And they said, but you can't do it as a volunteer because we can't have this report being biased. You have to do it as a professional. I'm like, okay, I can do that. And they said, okay, what's the name of your company? And I am, <laughs> I am literally driving on the road um, and talking hands-free, I'll, I'll say. And my wife and I had always had this joke about when you see a squirrel that gets run over in the road, it's a two-dimensional squirrel. And so the initials for that are TDS. And so I'm just making something up off the top of my head. And there was literally a two dimensional squirrel in front of me in the road. And I said, uh, trail design Specialist. That's the name of my company. And that's literally how my company was born from a, a squish squirrel in the middle of the road. And, uh, so I, um, put that together and we, we actually incorporated and. My very first job as a professional was working for the National Park Service, doing these huge assessments um, on all these different uh, parks in the Chattahoochee National Recreation Area System. And uh, it filled up a binder. You know, it was it was a written assessment. Uh, It was what was right with their trails, what was wrong with their trails, maps, all nine yards and uh it worked out really well and from there word spread and pretty soon i was doing design work a trail assessment work um and all different kinds of things on trail but i wasn't doing construction all right that was a whole nother whole nother matter it was uh you know i would have had to buy equipment you know the nice thing about doing design work and assessment work is all you have to do is have a laptop uh and a a sharp pencil so several years go by, uh, and that's what I'm doing. I've retired from the uh, state. I gave up the paycheck and the benefits and the retirement and everything like that, and uh, have gone out on my own. And um, this park service thing comes back around again, and they're they've taken that plan that I did so many years ago, and now they're finally implementing it and turning it into into a into part of their um their master plan. And so they want to now put canoe trail on the ground. And uh, so they call me up again and they say, hey, you know, are you interested in in bidding on this? We'd really rather have a professional work on it rather than a grading contractor or landscaper. And so um, I said, yes. And at that point, I went out and purchased the equipment um, and uh, got the contract. And so I went out and actually built trail based off of my very first original assessment. And So that grew from there. Um, So now I was the word was out that we were doing uh, trail construction as well as design assessment. And I also started doing the trail education thing. I mean, from day one, I had created the the trail master course as a four day uh, trail class and uh, then evolved it into a certification. And I loved it because it was everything I'd always wanted to do. Working for Imba, we had a trail class that was one or two days, very similar to the Trailmaster light class that I teach now. And it's just enough interest to, to, or just enough information to pique your interest and get people out looking at trails a little bit differently. But it wasn't really in-depth enough to where you could go out and make wholesale changes to your trails and make them sustainable. And the Trailmaster class was the springboard that let me do that. and. Obviously, that's evolved over the years. So if we keep fast forwarding through the years, you know, I started out very strong in the southeast. Uh, I had trail crews working for me. Then we started expanding out from there. And, and I had crews working in, in not only in the southeast, but we we're starting to move farther north into Kentucky um, and places like that. And then I got a call to do a trail master class in Wisconsin. And uh, here we are yep and here we <laughs> here are Wisconsin. The, fir- the first one um, I will say that that the first request was from the uh, the horse Council here in Wisconsin and uh, it was at Kickapoo Valley Reserve. I, I, I know the story mildly. Yeah and uh, very familiar with the location right and uh, um, it was uh, it was it was well attended. Bridget Brown who was the state trails coordinator for Wisconsin, I uh, was in attendance and went through it. And um, um, Bridget, I'm sorry if you're listening to this, but a major pain in my butt, uh, because she asked every question there was possible possible to ask and and challenged everything I had to say, um, which uh seemed to work in my favor because she's my fiance now, but uh um Uh, it it worked out really well, but, uh, above and beyond all that, uh, the state saw enough value in it that they put together, um, an education program where they helped subsidize these trail education classes. And that really kicked off all the different classes that I've, I've taught over the years in Wisconsin and the trail construction side of that or, and design side of that started the same way as it did in the Southeast. A lot of land agency people would come to these classes. They would be really interested in in having me come out and look at their trails or work on their trails, but they had no money. They Had no money, and uh, it, it finally happened that somebody said, "Hey, you know, we finally got some grants to do this, and we want to hire a professional." And then it got popular enough to where it made sense for me to open an office in uh, in Wisconsin, and that's based out of Madison now. So. Now I work in in Wisconsin, uh, Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, Iowa, so I can service the Midwest pretty well out of this location.
2: Yeah, so we're going to go really far into the weeds, and then I'm going to pull us back out. Okay. In the first podcast interview I ever did, which actually was on a different podcast called Driftless Dirt, it was with Pete Taylor. Pete Taylor is the owner of Blue Dog Cycles in Viroqua, Wisconsin, which is not too far away from the Kickapoo Valley Reserve. And just to put some context out here, the Kickapoo Valley Reserve is a different animal than all other public land in the state of Wisconsin. Um, first and foremost, it's actually run through the Department of Tourism. you don't need to go into the history of how the Kickapoo Valley Reserve came about because that's a whole different story in itself. But Pete told me in, during that interview that he credits you with getting mountain bike access into the Kickapoo Valley Reserve. And to add a little bit more context, this is an 8,500 acre reserve, so it's not... It's not small, and what are your like? Kind of dive into how you brought that to reality because that was a horse and hike specific venue prior to your arrival.
0: Um, I'm persistent. <laughs> that's it. uh That's the bottom line. There, I uh, so I did several classes at the Kickapoo Valley Reserve, and as you know, I'm very pro shared use. You know, and I so. While I was there, I would talk about, you know, you know, why are mountain bikers allowed on these trails? And, you know, when there's the the typical stories is that, you know, the horse people don't get along with the bike people and the hiking people don't want anybody, even the horses on their trails and things like that. And they they were happy in their own little world, keeping everything separate and the way things were. And uh, a couple of years into that, uh, there was a big flood. That came through 2008. Yes, exactly. And, uh, there was a lot of damage from that and there were a lot of damage to the trails at Kickapoo Valley reserve. And the manager called me and asked me if I was interested in coming out and doing some work on their trails and, and, and rebuilding them. Um, and they were going to use the money to not just rebuild the trails the way they were before, but to actually make improvements to the trails, uh, so that they could, um, have better trail. And so I said, I I would love to, I said, but, you know, let's have a conversation about this and let's talk about allowing bikes on the trails that I'm going to be redoing as well, because while I'm doing this, I can actually build better sight lines and build the sustainability into it. That's going to support all these different types of use. And shockingly, they agreed. And so, uh, it wasn't a huge, it wasn't a huge contract. I think in the end we built less than five miles of trails out there, but it was open to mountain bikes. It was that foot in the door. And I'm really proud of Pete for following up on that and being able to continue to uh, expand that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. it's And it is, you know, it definitely is an anomaly in the state of Wisconsin in terms of bikes on, on public state owned public lands. And, and we, you know, I, we ride out there a couple of times a year. It's a very. It's a very interesting place. It's a very beautiful place. It's it's in the Driftless Area and those that know the Driftless Area know it's got pretty awesome topography. So, now I'm going to pull us back out of the weeds. You talked about training and trail master certifications and so you you've you evolved into planning and trail trail assessments and then into construction and then into training. And now I believe you're really all in on, on the training aspect of things, you know, how has that been going? And I, I mean, I would, I think I opened the show with this, but I'd argue that you've trained more people when it comes to both, uh, volunteers and trail organizations, as well as government agency people than anybody. So how has that gone? And, and what do you, what do you find value in with, with getting these trail master classes going?
0: It's a really good question. There is, there's been a lot of First off, it was brought about because I felt there was a need. You know, uh, there were a lot of different places you could go to get trail education, but it was all done through doing. In other words, uh, you would go and join this organization for a week or a week or two and just go out and build trail with them. And hopefully you would learn what you needed to know through working with. Them. Well, I could get that working with my local club. You know, and I wanted to really take that to the next level. And so um, when I originally developed the trail master course, it was focused for volunteer. You know, I was trying to bring volunteers up to a more professional level to where they could get things done and especially work with land agencies and speak to them on at, the, at, a, at a similar level where the land agencies were at. And um That ended up being a little bit of a misnomer because what I started finding out is most land agencies didn't know as much about trails as we assumed that they did. And so I started making modifications to the class uh, curriculum that would make it more attractive to bring land agency people in. And so I started having volunteers and land agency folks in the class at the same time. And that had an extra benefit of you know, in most areas, it was the the local land agency folks that were coming in and the local volunteers that worked on those properties. Well, they're all learning the same thing at the same time. And so their their ability to communicate with each other at the same level was being developed in these classes. And then they could take it further from there. So there's, there's a real benefit to it from that standpoint. And it's just been... I love talking to people. I love talking to people about trails. You know that as well as anybody because you usually can't get me to shut up once I start. But uh, it's just been this amazing thing to watch it grow after almost 20 years of, of teaching people about trails and and what it is today. And, you know, especially with the whole certification thing. All right, When I first started out um, making it a certification, my goal was to create something that would have tangible benefit to the people taking the course, you know, because I've been to to classes before where you go to a class and you sit down, you listen to somebody talk about something and you leave the class and you go, wow, that was interesting. Uh, maybe I can use some of that. But when you put testing involved or when you involve testing and, and you put an actual certification to it, then it becomes something, uh, it becomes its own entity that people can take back and say, Hey, I learned this and I can use this. And here's the proof that that happened. And so in the very beginning, I would get people asking me, you know, like, like, well, what what benefit professionally does this certificate mean? And I had to be honest. It didn't mean anything. It was just a means for me to try to make this mean more to you. And but over the years, it has that has changed because I've I've been doing this long enough. And there's been so many people come to this course that it's become recognized nationally uh, as as an actual entity, and uh, so um, you know, I've heard back from people who have told me that it's helped them get jobs and things like that, or advancements in their in their trail career. And um, I can't even sit here and tell you how many people have been through this course that now ha- have a shingle out. And are building trails professionally themselves. And uh, so it's, um, yeah, it's been, it's been, it's a thing. There's two companies in lacrosse alone, trail building
2: contractors that have been through your course.
0: The Southeast is starting to get crowded. <laughs> so uh, There's a lot yeah. of people down there that build trails now. And, you know, I'll see somebody's name come up and I'll be like, hey, I remember them. Yeah. So, yeah, it's really kind of cool that way.
2: So to put some context, and we're gonna gonna go back into the weeds. To put some context with, into your four day courses, you know, you 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 cover the whole spectrum. You know, you have the classroom. You know, I took this course from you back in two thousand twelve. the mornings, have been the classroom aspect, and the afternoons, I've been in the field, and so it's not just one or the other; it's it's combined, and it is everything from layout and design to building to maintenance to how do you properly crew lead volunteers. And to give credit to or to, to, to put weight to this, you know, with our local organization, Outdoor Recreation Alliance, if you're going to be a crew leader for our volunteer crews, you have to go through Mike's course. We don't just put anybody in as a crew leader, you know. So let's talk about, you know, the different aspects of those courses and how they really play out.
0: So. The whole impetus behind the Trailmaster class is to give people. A solid base, you know. As much detail as I go into the class over four days, I still look at it as just the basics for trail building. And you know, I get all the time I have people ask me, "Well, can I just come to the trail maintenance class?" Because that's really all I do. I don't build trails. I don't design trails. And the whole idea behind it is that you get the knowledge. Uh, behind good trail design and good trail construction so that you can do long-term lasting maintenance. And so day one, is required. You sit there and you listen to me go on and on and on about, about trail design and a lot of theory and, and ideas and the psychology behind it. You know, understanding trail design from a natural impact standpoint or how water affects a trail or wind, water, and gravity actually affects a trail is pretty easy because it's something that you can go out and see in the field. It's a tangible thing. The user impact, how we react to things that are done on trails is a completely different matter. It's a lot of psychology. And so much of that I learned just by going out and observing people on trails. And so, I'm that now I'm that creepy old guy that's hanging out on the side of the trail watching how people react to things, but it's a a, really, it's a door opening experience. And so day one is focused on trail design. Day two, trail construction builds off of that design. All right. Now we're going to take what we learned and we're going to learn how to or talk about how to actually put that on the ground and turn it into a trail, you know, full bench cut as opposed to partial bench cut what the heck is a critical edge and why does it matter? You know, things like that. Clearing, just how you clear a trail can completely change somebody's perception of how that trail is going to flow. Flow Building flow into a trail and making sure, and that's not, I had a conversation with somebody, I'm going to sidebar here for just a minute, but I had a conversation with somebody not too long ago. And I was talking about flow on trails because, hey, let's face it, all I do is talk about trails anymore. It's it's a bad habit. But uh, and their perception was is that we were talking about flow trails, not flow on trails. And so they started talking about how all these different features on trails that they'd ridden had affected their experience. And I listened to that, and after a little while, I realized that you know they're talking about flow trails. And so I took the time to explain the difference between a flow trail and good flow on trails. And the good flow on a trail is, is your perception of, of your experience on that trail. You know, when you get done with that trail and the experience was, wow, that trail was awesome. I loved how I just swept through it. And, and you know, this part seemed easier. And I like riding it this way better than I like riding it that way. That's flow on the trail. A flow trail is obviously a trail that's that's packed full of features, berm turns, in-slope things, uh, you know, uh, maybe tabletops and things like that that lead into into a exciting experience. Not just uh, I can't do I can't really show the hand signals with <laughs> audio. I'm sitting here doing all these things with my hands on a, a podcast so Mike's currently
2: in the flow state right
0: now. I am in flow yep and <laughs> so uh, so those get those get built into day two into the, the trail construction day and uh, a lot of tips and things that go along with that. then uh, day three is maintenance where we pull all this information together and and talk about how this works to give you long-term maintenance on your trail. Because let's face it, nobody likes going out to do maintenance on a trail and doing the exact same thing in the exact same spot that they did it last week, you know. And uh, it's nice to go out and do something on a trail, do maintenance on a trail. And then next time you go out, go and do something completely different because the maintenance that you did last time is still holding up just fine and is going to last. Uh, And then, of course, the final aspect is crew leadership. And again, this came about from when I developed this course for volunteers. But I am astounded at how many land agencies have volu- have their own volunteer programs and they have uh, people that they have that lead these crews. And so the crew leadership thing has continued because land agencies uh, feel a need for this, too. And, uh, you know, the whole crew leadership thing, it's it's about how to take a crew out in the field and safely. The whole thing is focused on safety. And keep them safe, and make sure that they go out, that they're kept kept track of, that they're that they again stay safe, um, and then they come back with the same fingers and toes that they left, and the whole thing comes together to be, um, in to me, it's still exciting, <laughs> even after twenty years. I still get excited about about teaching the course, but uh, it's a pretty well rounded introduction to building trails.
2: Yeah, is there something a feature? that really stood the test of time in terms of like what you teach. That was super, obviously water is huge, you know? So something that you really, you know, that you kind of discovered early on and you just, you continue to push it and push it and push it
0: throughout this course. The rolling grade dip. Yeah. I, I was thinking you'd say that. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it's, it, you know, and the whole rolling grade dip came about. It was just one of those eureka moments one day where I was actually out on an old forest service road and I'm looking at this big wide gravel road and I'm wondering how, and it's fairly steep. It's up in the mountains. And I'm, I'm like, how do they keep water from eroding this road? What is it? What type of structures? And we're driving along this thing and we're going over all these kind of whoop-dee-doo looking things. And I stop and look at one. And I realize what they've done there in, in, Road building terms, it's called a turnout. Basically, they 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 angle the road so that the water turns out and then there's a hump on the backside. It's very similar to um, a water bar, a dirt water bar on a trail. And uh, but they have to build the hump so that it'll accommodate vehicles so they don't bottom out on it. Or if they're pulling a trailer, they don't bottom out on it. And they do that with the addition of a ramp on the backside. And I started looking at that and I started thinking about the dirt water bar and the problems associated with it and came up with the whole idea for the rolling grade dip. Big broad based dip angled so that it drains water off the side and then a a short hump if you will and a long ramp tailed off the back side of that. And the mass of the of the structure lends it to longevity, the size of the drain dip Minimizes the amount of, of maintenance that has to be done and keeping sedimentation pulled out and things like that. And when I built the very first one on the Olympic course, which was my test bed for the unsuspecting public, uh, after the dirt dried, it became part of the trail and you didn't even notice it. And I realized by watching people go through this rolling grade dip that they weren't breaking. They weren't changing the pattern of how they were riding um, on this, and then when runners would come through, it's the same thing. They would just run right through it. There was no climbing up or or slowing down or anything like that going through it. And I realized that through the idea of trying to just add more mass to this thing, uh, that we'd completely taken user impact off the table, and so the the maintenance factor on this erosion control device. Got to be so much easier, and I made a few other changes over the years. I changed the angle of the drainage so that uh, water could carry its volume and velocity out. If you want to know more about that, come to Trail School. I won't bore you with all the details in this podcast, but uh, bottom line is is it ended up becoming a much better band aid for fixing erosion problems on trails. And I'm happy to say that that in most cases. People have stopped building water bars and have started putting in rolling grade dips. And it's cool to go someplace I've never been before and go out on a trail and see where somebody's built good rolling grade dips. And it just shows me that this has become uh, a mostly accepted way of erosion control on trails. So you know what I just heard? What? I just heard that you just created the
2: first feature of a flow trail. Hmm.
0: Well, there you go. I never really thought about it like that, but sure.
2: (laughs) I mean, that's the experience as a user that you're doing and flow trail does control water flow too. Yeah. You know, I mean, pull the tabletops and berms and everything out of it, but I mean, just like the actual linear aspect of it. Cool. So we've established that you've been around for quite a while doing in this world of trail building. Um, How do you, how have you seen things evolve in, in the, in the world of trail building, just generally speaking and. From where it started back in the amateur trail crew days to where we are today in 2021.
0: Back in the beginning, most trail builders were a sta- or established themselves as well. First off, a, a good many of the trail builders that existed when I first got into it pre existed mountain bike. All right, so their their goal was to just build sustainable trails for equestrian use, for mostly for hiking use, and things like that. But the ideas of building feature laden trails really wasn't a thing. It was just about how to build a trail, solving the problems from getting a trail from here to there and what it took to get it there. And, you know, building bridges um, and uh, uh, other boardwalks and things like that on trails. That's what a feature laden trail was. It wasn't like it is now. Um, start to fast forward through that. A few more trail builders get into it. And when I got into it, the focus was still on creating sustainable trails. Uh, As Imba's popularity grew and the Trail Care Crew program grew, I started to see a switch to to building more uh, trails with features in them that would increase the user experience. This is where uh, what was the it, flow trails have evolved from um, what was the what was the original term for that? It's escaping me now, but it was it, it started up in the Pacific Northwest and uh, have, you know, now you've got gravity trails. Now you've got flow trails. Back in the day, uh, when I first started mountain biking, I used to race cross country and downhill. And at that time, the downhills were 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 mostly built around speed. I mean, I can remember start going, showing up at the starting line with people on fully rigid bikes, you know, that were there to race the downhill and, uh, um, you know, look at what downhill is now. Downhill to me is if you're not wearing a parachute, then you're just absolutely insane. Um, a, I could not survive a downhill run now. So, um, it, that has evolved. And I look at the, the different types of trail builders that are out now and it's, Surprising to me to see how many of them are specialized. You know, they do bike parks, they do flow trails, they do things like that, where the just the trail, the well, well-rounded trail builder uh, that goes out and builds really good hiking trails or bu- and builds really good horse trails and can build really good bike trails or or even dabbles in a motorized. Um, there's not a lot of, them. you know, the, everything has become specialized fields. And, uh, so I'd say that's where the, the evolution of the trail builder has gone is into specialty markets.
2: Yeah. One thing I've noticed, and I don't know if, I don't actually know what, if we got, if it's because we got too specialized, but I have noticed a trend back towards just building good single track. And
0: that makes me really happy. And
2: having good single track and having a good, and still incorporating some of the, some of those features into that good single track to make it, you know, make it a, a better user experience, but really, you know, it was, it was funny. I was having a conversation last summer with Aaron Rogers from rock solid. And he was talking about how, you know, he had a mix of, of U15 mini excavators and U27 mini excavators. And he said to me last summer, he's like, man, I need like all my excavators this summer to be U15s. It's like that's people are asking for more just that single track experience. And that's what a lot of his jobs were last summer. And, and so it's interesting to kind of see things come full circle. I think you know that's a lot with just life in general, right? Yeah you know and and it's you get that new shiny object whether it's that flow trail or that jump line or whatever and then people do it enough and then they kind of miss that experience they had of just riding through the woods and having a good experience right
0: right that and again, I tend to look at things from um, a sustainable standpoint, but the maintenance that goes along with with having all these different features and bottom line is if your trail doesn't have good bones, you know, if it doesn't have a, a sustainable base, then all you're going to do is work on it, you know, and, and there becomes that that flip flop point where you go from just being able to go out and enjoy the experience to looking at your trail like, oh, man, we got to come back and fix this or no, look at that. We got to fix this now. We got to do that. And I think that's where that's coming back around is that people are, people are now realizing that as much fun as it is to play on those things that. If the word sustainable isn't in there, then it means just a whole lot of work for somebody.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've this might get a little controversial with people listening to this, but I've had it change in feelings and how I look at what should be built personally. And it's because of exactly what you just said. You know, it's I think we, you know, bike park type trails have a place and that place is bike parks. And people, I think, want to still continue to see bike park style trails and say a city park or wherever your local trail system is. But the reality is, is that you're mostly relying on volunteers to maintain that stuff. Whereas when you're going to a bike park, especially a lift access bike park where you pay to play, that bike park has a maintenance staff and a maintenance crew that can continually work on the stuff that we're talking about. So that person that really wanted to see that stuff isn't spending more time fixing the trail than they are riding the trail. Cause we all do this because we want to enjoy the trail, not because we want to work on the trail. There are some people out there that maybe really enjoy working on trail, but I think for the most part, we came here from using the trail, not because we wanted to just dig in the woods and digging is great, you know, but I've said it a lot lately, bike park. I, I think having that enough to scratch the itch or maybe to be able to teach some people, some skills to translate that into a bike park experience is, is good. But not over the top,
0: right? Right. Yeah. It's it's just, it's not for every public recreation trail, you know. And when this when this stuff started started becoming more and more popular, you know, it was pretty easy to equate it to a BMX track. You know, the features you find on a BMX track, or or even a motocross track. And uh, uh, for years and years, I used to ride motocross. And you look at the way those are maintained. You know, at the end of the day, somebody goes out with a tractor or a dozer. They run through it, they rebuild everything, and it's set for the next day. On a public recreation trail, that's a hard work volunteer <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that, that tries to keep up with that kind of stuff. And uh, so I had always kind of filed away in the back of my mind that that trails, good attention to sustainability would come back around. And that's exactly what you just described is it's, that mindset is starting to swing back around to sustainable trails. And the ideal trail will eventually – or ideal mountain bike trail will eventually be a trail that has, like I said, good bones. It'll be a sustainable trail that has a few really fun features on it. And uh, that's going to satisfy everybody's fun factor and and be a great trail. That's still going to require minimal maintenance.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't want to sound like I'm against those – bike parky type trails because one of the other things the, the plot the positive side of this that i've seen specifically in metro community is that it brought a lot more people into the fold you know it brought the gravity riders that are maybe doing their own rogue thing where they shouldn't be doing it mm-hmm. it brought them in it, into the into the fold of working on our public trails and helping us with our public trails and so there are there are definite benefits to to this and having a, an, an inclusive and and diverse trail system both in terms of the people that are using it but also in terms of the the way it is laid out and and the experience you get on it is super important you know because everyone's going to experience it a little bit differently and if you have the same you have the same thing i've and i've heard it before this is a this is where i go really <laughs> sideways <laughs> why aren't why aren't all trails just built really hard and technical well initially that's what we built because that's what we wanted to ride or initially that's what we learned to ride on because it wasn't actually a specific built trail. It was just that old hiking thing that, that became that over the years. And maybe it was like that before mountain bikes were even invented. Sure. But the reality is you're not going to grow the activity if the barrier of entry is
0: super high. That's exactly right. It's, there's gotta be a mix there. You know, that's one of the things what I love about loop trails, loop style trails uh, is that you can have one loop, that is focused on open and flowing. It's easy. Everybody's going to go out and be able to enjoy it. And then you have another loop that 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 pushes people's skills to the to the next level. You know, it's like here, it's mostly, it's mostly easy, but here's something a little bit harder. Go ahead and try this, you know, work your way up to it. And then you've got your full-on technical trails. You've got the, you know, the the feature Laden experiences and things like that. So you can you can put together something that appeals to everybody, but not anything that 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 appeals to just one particular aspect of your user group.
2: Before we get into closing comments, this is gonna throw you for another loop because it came and it popped into my brain as we we're talking. It seems like there's one corner of this country that really has their stuff dialed in terms of having good trail organization stuff going on, and that's the southeast in Sorba. How come, what do you think has been kind of their secret sauce or well, how they've been able to create and recreate Sorba organizations across the all of the Southeast, from Tennessee to Georgia to North Carolina, South Carolina, all of it?
0: All right. The thing that Sorba has going for it is numbers. Okay. Um, years and years ago, when, when they first started, when they first joined Imba, the executive director of Sorba. Made the decision to grow the organization as much as possible. Um, you know, the original Sorba. Uh, we, met, I was there when just after it was formed, and we met in the, in the back of a bike shop after hours, uh, and it was just the Atlanta chapter, and it's literally grew, growing out from there. It encompasses several states, and that's their that's their success secret. But it's not a hundred percent true. All right. Quantity doesn't buy quality. All right. Sorba has the numbers. They have a very big voice inside of IMBA. They get a lot of things done. They get access to a lot of areas, but they struggle with the quality of those experiences. I'm going to flip this back on you, Josh, because one of the reasons that I enjoy working in the Midwest so much. Is because the quality of the people and the quality of the experiences up here are way higher than what I enjoy in the southeast. And I will put and and this was not <laughs> pre-planned, but I'm going to put Aura at the top of that the top of that pick. And and even when you guys were HPT Human Power Trails, it was the same thing from day one. Fifteen years ago, when I did the very first Trail Master Class here, I was blown away. By not only the pre-existing knowledge that you guys had about trails, but your willingness to learn and put that stuff to use on the trails, and I remember within five years that that I was bragging about you guys nationally when I would when people would ask me questions about other user groups, you know, like who do you think is the best out there, and it was it was HPT AKA Aura now because you could conduct your trail work like a professional you know you and you invested in the equipment you invested the time in your volunteers and you took the time to train people and and do things everything that you did on your trails is positive you know and then when you became aura and and a much more integrated organization you took it to the whole next level and I mean look at what you guys have created here it's absolutely amazing to me. And, um, you know, there's, there's only a few places in the country that I would ever choose to live. And if I did l- live full-time in the m- Midwest, it would be here. Yeah. And it's because of the quality of the experiences that, that, that are available here. And that's because of Aura.
2: Yeah, it is. I'm going to flip it back on you. <laughs> you know, we, we do have, we have, a, we have a very passionate trail user community here. Um, it's grown a lot, especially in the last, I'm going to say the last seven years. Um, as trail running has become more popular in this area. So we've been able to get a lot more inclusive. But we wouldn't we wouldn't be where we are if we didn't bring people like you in to help us be who we are. You know, so for those that are listening to this, it's super important that you you know, if you wanna if you want your trail org to succeed, you really need to invest in the training for this. And that's and that's where, you know, we've we've like Mike said, we've brought Mike in for 15 years now. And it's not just for trail master, you know, we haven't, we haven't even touched on the mechanized side of things, you know, but Mike also teaches, uh, mechanized training specifically with the ditch, witch, which is a great tool, you know, and, and so having, doing that training with those volunteers is super important. And so, and we wouldn't be the organization that we are had those training opportunities not been available for us to present to our volunteers and to the government agencies that come through, you know, so. Well, I think that's a good way to close this thing. What, what do you have as far as any, any types of, you have any more wisdom you'd like to impart on us before we hit stop on this recording?
0: Wisdom out of this head. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so the way I end every trail master class, one of the things I like to say is go out and make good decisions. And, uh, while that can apply to life, um, it certainly applies to trails and, uh, um, yeah. So I'll leave it with that.
2: Make good decisions. <laughs> well, thank you, Mike. I really appreciate um, the opportunity to be able to sit down with you. It's awesome to be able to do this in person. As, as we've talked about, Mike is back here in lacrosse doing it. He just finished up a trail master certification course yesterday as this is being recorded. And he's going into the weekend with the TrailMaster light to help people learn about just enough, just about enough about what they want to do or what, how to look at a trail differently. Cause that's really, it's that's really it. like, when you go through the course, even Trailmaster Light, you look at things way differently, which is good and bad.
0: Yeah, I'll ruin you forever riding just going out and enjoying a trail again. That's
2: where I was going to say is good and bad because you get pretty critical in how the way things, the way people have done things and not, you know, and, and it happens everywhere. Like not everybody makes good decisions or sometimes you need to test stuff to see if it really works, you know, and that's kind of how we got to where we were, too, is through a lot of experimentation and seeing what works and what doesn't. Obviously, there's logic with that as well and you can't you can't beat gravity
1: wind or water
0: exactly
1: thank you mike thank you thank you for listening links for the various topics discussed in the show can be found in the show notes if you like what you've heard please take the time to share these shows with others sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself this podcast has been made possible by mountain bike radio smith's bike shop in lacrosse wisconsin and as an evolution trail services production If you have ideas on future communities or people to feature on Trail Effect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.